Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 5th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the LC, L, the ACLU rather, is filing another lawsuit against the city of Lexington for alleged wrongful imprisonment, or rather jailing. Then this August was the hottest on record for Mississippi and Louisiana, but there are no federal or state guidelines in place for heat exposure for outdoor workers. How some in forests are managing, plus doctors are cautioning folks about a rising number of respiratory essential virus cases known as RSV. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new lawsuit is being filed against the city of Lexington for allegedly detaining a woman with the intent of bringing in revenue. Lexington native Alexis Jew was approached at a gas station in December of 2021 by former police chief Sam Dobbins and the current chief, Charles Henderson. Jew claims the officers detained her without telling her why and required she pay a fine of $1,200 in cash to be released. This is the fourth lawsuit brought against the city in recent years related to police corruption. Attorney Joshua Tom with the Legal Defense Fund at the ACLU of Mississippi speaks with our Mike McEwen. He says this isn't a unique case and racist comments several years ago led to Dobbins' resignation. Our um, lawsuit on behalf of Alexis Jew is, you know, only talks about her specifically. But, you know, we do allege that the stop and find policy is, you know, Lexington Police Department and the city of Lexington's policy. So, you know, the fact that it's happening to other people is uh, in line with that. Yeah, I was wanting to ask about that. Um, I know one section of the suit, it claims that the circumstances leading to her arrest were decades in the making, and it continues that those stop and find policies are entrenched in Lexington and could be fairly criticized as official policy of the city. Could you speak a little more about that? Once Sam Dobbins became the police chief in July of 2021, you know, his, as the complaint uh, on behalf of Alexis Jew alleges, started to increase the revenue that came from the police department substantially, uh, you know, many, many times over. And, you know, our lawsuit alleges that that increase in revenue is a result of the stop and find policy, which involves uh, arresting people, 
detaining and jailing them on either bogus or trumped up charges and then requiring people to pay um, alleged fines or alleged bonds. It's not really clear what exactly from a legal perspective uh, these monetary payments are, but they're often in large amounts and they were often, if not always required to be paid in cash. And so, you know, that policy was so uh, pervasive that it could only fairly be described as the official policy of Lexington Police Department and of the city of Lexington. I was looking at the number in the lawsuit relating to the fine of $1,283, and that seems like a pretty hefty fine. I was wondering, what exactly was she charged with, and is there anything statutory to your knowledge that justifies that fine? You know, it's not really clear how these fines are calculated. I mean, it's sort of unclear to us, you know, whether they're just made up out of thin air or whether they're actually based on something. But for purposes of what Alexis was charged with, it sort of uh, is actually unclear. Her arrest report is sort of inconsistent. If you look at the complaint, you know, she is alternatively charged with failure to obey officer, false information, obstruction of justice, disorderly conduct, misdemeanor assault. All of those charges were written on her arrest report, but it's not exactly clear which one of those is uh, her actual charges. And from what I also read in the suit, the arrest report had some grammatical errors for one, but also it claimed that she was convicted of those charges for failure to appear. Um, And my understanding is that she never received any communication or notice that she had to appear for a hearing. That's right. So after she was uh, released from jail, you know, she contacted the Lexington Municipal Court many times and actually even went up there to try to figure out, you know, what the status of her charges were, like when her court date was, et cetera, et cetera. And she could never get a clear answer for that. We at ACLU Mississippi asked for public records for any court documents, any court orders, any court dispositions of Alexis's um, charges. And the city said, quote, you know, they don't have any of those. And so the only indication of the status of her charges is this is this unclear arrest report. How was she inevitably released from the jail? Her sister came and paid this uh, $1,283 that, you know, again, it's unclear what that amount of money is based on. Was it a bond? Was it a fine? It's really unclear what that amount of money is. But um, her sister paid that amount of money in cash to Lexington or LPD, and she was released. To your knowledge, is it typical for police to require these sort of fines in cash? That I mean, I think decades ago that might have been practice, but I feel like most things, cash has kind of been phased out. Well, you know, the, the typical process is, you know, people pay a bond, you know, and you, and you have a bond. It's, you know, either, you know, depending on the amount of the bond— the amount and the kind of bond, you either have to pay the full amount or you, have, or you can pay 10% of the bond. And, you know, that can be, I guess, whatever form of payment the, the bond agent accepts. This payment is unusual. It's because it, it doesn't appear to be a bond, a fine or fee. It's fine or fees normally have to be imposed by the court. There's, there's no court involvement in the, in the imposition of this fine. And so, it doesn't appear to be a proper fine or fee. 
Um, so, yeah, it's not really clear what it is. And we think it's part of, uh, as we alleged in the lawsuit, this illicit stop and find policy that was used illegally to help increase the revenue uh, for Lexington through the police department. And I believe I also read in the suit that your client's sister petitioned the mayor of Lexington to try and help secure her release. Was that something that helped in that process? Did the mayor respond to that request? I think the, the, those allegations of the complaint were just that Alexis's sister was trying to figure out how to uh, get Alexis out of jail. And so she was contacting various people uh, in Lexington, including the mayor, to, to figure it out because um, it wasn't clear. Where does the case stand now? You filed the complaint. Is there at least like a loose understanding of a timeline on this? Um, you know, these type of cases normally take uh, a year, two years, maybe maybe three years or more. Currently, we're just at the very beginning with the complaint filing. You know, after that, the sort of just normal litigation process will proceed. But I would expect it to be bare minimum a year, if not several years. And the nature of the complaint, it's a civil rights complaint, and it alleges that Alexis Jews' Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights were violated. Could you speak a little more to that? Yeah, so the Fourth Amendment claims uh, are based on the unlawful and without probable cause, without good, you know, without sufficient reason, the arrest, the detention, the jailing, uh, the excessive force used when uh, Charles Henderson and Sam Dobbins, who are Lexington police officers, you know, arrested and, and detained and jailed Alexis. Joshua Tom is an attorney with the ACLU of Mississippi Legal Defense Fund. Coming up this August was the hottest on record for Mississippi and Louisiana, yet there are no federal or state guidelines in place for heat exposure for outdoor workers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. There are many ways to support the programs you love on MPB. Becoming a member, starting a monthly gift, donate a vehicle you don't need anymore, and now... Donating a piece of land or other real estate. To learn more about the advantages of donating real estate, just click Donate Now from mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. This August was one of the hottest on record for the Gulf South. Those above average temperatures are persisting into the fall. With the absence of federal or state guidelines for heat exposure, outdoor workers are more vulnerable. Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom talks to construction workers and landscapers in forest who are finding ways to navigate extreme temperatures on their own. Tomas Pablo has been working in construction and remodeling for eight years. This summer was the hottest he's experienced yet. It's been very hot. He was telling the temperature that it keeps increasing, 98, 104, 105. And all he's been doing is staying hydrated and drinking water. That was Genesis Valdez translating. 
We're in Forest, Mississippi at El Pueblo. It's a Mississippi-based humanitarian group that serves immigrant communities in Louisiana and Alabama as well. Pablo has had to adjust to this heat. And it's not just him. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the agency that forecasts the weather, says Mississippi and Louisiana had their hottest August on record so far. Almost two months without rain. We haven't got rain in a, in a minute now, in a while. More than a month without rain. It's not just the heat. Mississippi and Louisiana are dealing with drought, too. But despite dangerous conditions, the vast majority of U.S. states do not have set standards for outdoor workers and heat exposure. And it doesn't exist on the federal level, either. Christy Ebby is a professor at the University of Washington, she researches how climate change impacts human health. She says these workers need more protection because they are at higher risk of heat illness and injury. This is one of the places where we understand the physiology, we understand how to get people's core body temperature down. It's pretty straightforward. And if you can protect workers and keep those core body temperatures down, it's helpful. It, it really does save lives. In the absence of guidelines... Individual employers and workers are coming up with their own methods to protect themselves. Juan Simone Hernandez has been in construction work for 17 years, but the heat has even got to him this summer. Carolina Bermudez translated while he told the story. He treated his heat sickness by drinking an electrolyte beverage that's supposed to help with hydration. Now, he makes sure to take breaks, and he says sometimes he and his coworkers take off earlier because of the heat. But the ideal, Hernandez says, would be to come into work earlier and set up a fan. If his boss had no problem with it, perhaps a fan or a tent. Whatever solution he comes up with, it may have to extend into fall. NOAA predicts that Louisiana, Mississippi, and most of Alabama will experience higher than normal temperatures through October. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, a new vaccine could help prevent the most severe symptoms of RSV. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Family owned. You know, I respect my dad a lot. I know it wasn't easy when he passed the baton to me, but in the end, he realized it was the best thing for the business to sometimes look at things from different color lenses. Family owned, a legacy leadership podcast exploring family businesses who make up the backbone of the American economy. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Food and Drug Administration has approved two vaccines this year to help prevent severe symptoms of the respiratory illness RSV. In Mississippi, a growing number of adults are going to the hospital to seek treatment, and they say the symptoms are flu-like. Doctors predicted this outcome during the summers. Respiratory illnesses often see an uptick in the fall when students return to indoor classroom activity. Galen Marshall is the Pfizer Triplet Chair of Allergy and Immunology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells our Michael Guidry some adults are at a higher risk for severe outcomes because they have other underlying health conditions. The average uh, adult individual who gets a flu-like illness they get, and that's usually a combination of some fever, aches and pains, uh, nasal symptoms, maybe a cough to go along with it. Cough gets to be productive. They're sick for anywhere short time, four to five days to a long time, two weeks. They get over it and they move about it. They're miserable for that period of time, but they're pretty much functional. It's not bad. But there are more and more people that the COVID pandemic taught us have got compromised immune systems that are walking around fine if they're not challenged, but they can get sicker. And that's particularly true in older individuals, which we've known for a long time that our immune system wanes as we get older. It's even got a term. It's called immune senescence. And it's just an 80-year-old's immune system is not what it was when she was 40. But Things like good health behaviors, nutrition, et cetera, are all good for that, and they, they, they minimize that decrease. But in that group and then in young children that have yet to see a lot of the external environment, so their immune system hasn't built up a good memory yet, those are the ones that are most susceptible, we know, for flu. And we've known for a long time that those kids are susceptible to RSV. And there was a longstanding suspicion that a lot of the adults, because of contact, you know, an average age guy or gal who's got three little kids at home and they've had RSV and they come to see the doctor, it's probably not too hard to figure that they might have RSV as well. But there was not good diagnostics for that. The diagnostics came along, but then they came along with the idea of, okay, why can't we try to minimize it or even prevent it with a vaccine? And so the RSV vaccine was developed for that. And it went through the extensive development process and was just recently approved by the FDA for use. And what kind of uh, vaccine is the, the, the new RSV vaccine? Uh, is it a mRNA vaccine, like the COVID vaccine? No, no it's, or a protein, it? it's a protein vaccine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Is that similar to the, what the flu vaccine is? Yes. Both, okay. Yes. So what, do, what, what is, can you explain, like, what, what does a protein vaccine do? So the protein it mimics the, 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 the viruses are compa- composed of protein outer cores. And the inner core is the nucleic acid, the messenger RNA, or the DNA, depending on whether it's an RNA virus or DNA virus. The proteins are important in connecting the virus to the cell so it can infect it by the receptor. And you heard a lot of discussion about all this stuff during the COVID pandemic, okay? And then that core opens up and it lets the the nucleic acid in. If it's DNA, it goes down and takes over the machinery of the cell. If it's an RNA, it goes backwards up and then gets incorporated into the DNA and then takes over the machinery of the cell. But it does the same thing. So the cell starts, instead of making 
the proteins for what it would normally make, say proteins for blood proteins and so on, now makes viral proteins and viral nucleic acid, puts it together, and as it dies, it releases new virus, and it does this over and over and over again. That's how it works. Well, what the vaccine does is that it's the vaccine against those proteins, or in the case of COVID, the messenger RNA goes in and it gets the body to make those proteins, but it's still the immune response against those proteins to prevent the virus from being able to infect new cells. And that's how it ultimately, how, how a vaccine ultimately works. Oh, very, very cool. And so now RSV vaccine available for adults. Is this recommended around the same time flu um, because respiratory illnesses tend to pop up like around that change of the season or is there any good time for it? Well, it turns out that um, invented a new term. People tend to do that. And this one they're calling this year is the tridemic. And the tridemic is flu, which is around every year this term. COVID, which has never really gone away, but is taking an uptick. Is it related to the season or is it related to school started and football games are going? There's a lot of debate about that. Nobody absolutely knows for sure. And then RSV, which is known to be related to this time of year as well. They're all coming at once. So the idea is that the vaccination can help in all of them. You'll hear people say, well, I never get a flu vaccine because it gives me the flu. No, it doesn't. And, and, and I know there are people probably saying, oh, yes, it does. But let me tell you, you've never really had the full-blown flu if you think the two or three days I don't feel good after a flu vaccine is giving you the flu. But in all honesty, the flu vaccine and these others are killed. They're not, they're not intact. Uh, they're not what they call attenuated viruses like some other vaccines in the past have been where, yeah, they could revert back and become pathogen. They're not. There's not enough to create the disease. It's your body's response to that. And the the nice thing is that if you do get a little bit of a fever or if you do feel bad, it's really your body validating you're generating a good immune response against it. And my clinical observation in patients that I see in clinic is those people tend to do well. They're less likely to get a severe illness. The second part about these vaccines is that while the goal is, okay, I'm going to get the vaccine and I'm not going to get the flu, so I won't get the flu or so I won't get RSV or so I won't get COVID. It may not stop you from getting infected. That may only be two out of three that it stops getting infected. What it really works on in people my age is older individuals and in other individuals is it keeps you from getting really sick where you end up in the hospital or, heaven forbid, you end up dying as a result. That's where it makes its huge impact. So, yes, it prevents it in a lot of people, but it really Uh, The bang for the buck really is in people that are susceptible for a variety of different reasons, even those people that are being immunosuppressed because of, say, a transplant or because of a certain type of disease or so on. It's still worth those individuals getting that vaccine. And then uh, one small pivot uh, based on what you just said you you do with with, with allergy and asthma is, is the question of, you know, we kind of go through two big allergy kind of like seasons, one in the spring when everything blooms and then kind of here in the fall. Um, but it's been exceptionally dry uh, is, you know, just based on on your expertise and knowledge. Is, is there anything you can, you know, uh, you know, reduce or deduce or, or infer from the the way the season's gone that the, that might affect those who do suffer uh, extreme allergies? As you pointed out, we've had a very dry summer, which burned up a lot of the grass. So there's actually three allergy seasons. There's tree season at the end of February, beginning of March. 
there's grass season that's somewhere usually around the first part of May that lasts, depending on the humidity over the summer, it will last anywhere from four to six weeks to the whole summer. And then there's the fall weed season, ragweed, we call it season, but there are a lot of different kinds of weeds. That usually starts around Labor Day and is usually done by, say, Thanksgiving or a little bit before. Because of the dryness, you've not seen the bloom this year that you've seen otherwise. The ragweeds have been up, but they've not been up as severe, and they're not lasting as long. Now, here's the caveat. Uh, from, from the Farmer's Almanac, however accurate that is, and then various weather service, they claim that down here in our part of the st- our state is going to have a very cool-slash-cold but very wet winter. If indeed that's accurate, then what you're going to see is a uh, resumption of grape pollination sort of toward the end of uh, February, about the time you start seeing the pond pollen on your car in the morning. Pond pollen is not too bad unless you put your fingers on it and then snort it, and then you deserve what you get. Uh, But it's all the oak and the maple and the others that are pollinating at the same time, we'll have a, a a very active spring tree season that will translate on into the grasses into the summer. So if indeed they're right, you, you can tie the water to what you're going to get because the plants that turn brown in your home, well, the weeds and the wild grasses and the trees, they have the same problem. The trees are a little more resilient simply because they have deeper roots, but still it will have an impact on the tree season. It'll have a much bigger impact on next year's grass, late spring, early summer, and fall ragweed season. Dr. Galen Marshall with the University of Mississippi Medical Center, thank you so much for both um, speaking with us on on the new RSV vaccine, the the importance of vaccines and the and the and the research as well as um, what we can expect with the the upcoming allergy seasons multiple. Happy to do it. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.